Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Emily. I'm the other Emily. And this week we are talking to Sarah Manning, Alice Daniels Creasy and Elizabeth Simmons from the Edinburgh Earth Initiative. Launched in 2021 with the aim of ensuring work and teaching conducted at the University of Edinburgh addresses and acts upon the impact of climate change. Sarah, Alice and Elizabeth are all University of Edinburgh students. Outside their degrees, they work on the Fossil Fuel Ed project where student engagement alongside enacting sustainable change is held at the forefront of the initiative. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutes, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. I recently graduated um, with my master's in environmental sustainability. Um, I'm a postgraduate Earth Fellow uh, with the Edinburgh Earth Initiative, and I worked on the fossil fuel ed and carbon management and AV media projects. Uh, Hi, I'm Alice. I am currently doing a research master's in health, humanities and arts. And I'm also a postgraduate Earth Fellow at the Edinburgh Earth Initiative, um, also working on the fossil fuel-led project and some other projects as well. Hi, uh, my name's Sarah Manning, and I am also part of the postgraduate Earth Fellow cohort, um, working actually on the same projects that Alice is, so the fossil fuel-led project, ADAPT-ED, and a project working at the intersection of climate and health. Um, I'm also completing a top master's program in environment and development. Great. I mean, so so you're all part of the Edinburgh Earth Initiative. Um, If you'd like to explain to our listeners what the Edinburgh Earth Initiative is, what it does, you know, why you're all involved, that kind of thing, that'd be great. Yeah. (laughs) I can give the early pitch. Um, So the Edinburgh Earth Initiative, we also call it EEI um, for short, really is just that. It's an initiative. It's not an institute. So it's a little bit less formal in a lot of ways. Um, So it's largely playing the role of convener um, in the space of climate and sustainability at the university. So it works with a whole range of research organizations, um, a bunch of different disciplines across the university, as well as its global partners. And part of what brought us um, into the fossil fuel ed project and in as Earth Fellows too, is that EEI is really looking to become more embedded and get involved in the student community further. And so this is one means of doing that um, and giving students the opportunity to become involved in climate research um, and communications opportunities and get to know how the university is reacting to those more. I'd just add that I think it gives, as well as just giving students an opportunity to get involved in these things, it's kind of giving us experience of of what it's like to work in this space and also get to network with a lot of people who are already doing good work in this space and getting to be in meetings and and discussions with lecturers around the uni and other people who are working in the space so that we can sort of stay up to date with what's going on Um, and it's it's a really good opportunity. Yeah, I think they've both... (laughs) basically covered everything. Um, I just say that, yeah, a lot of what EEI focuses on is allowing students to engage in like really meaningful 
um, climate-related research. Um, so besides our own projects, a lot of our PhD students would engage in like really interesting projects in different parts of the world, in India and in Jordan, you know, um, and just looking at things like um, there's a medical waste project, for example, going on that looks at, you know, how all these COVID tests, like what is that waste? What's being done to like recycle that and that kind of thing. So it is just a really great space for meaningful climate research. Well, yeah, it sounds like such a great experience for all of you. Such different things you're all involved in as well. Um, so like what kind of got you interested in being an Earth Fellow and what drove you to apply in the first place? I personally applied because I worked in the social research uh, environment before starting my postgrad degree um, and I really enjoyed that work but it wasn't directly relevant to the climate and so I was very interested in taking that experience and bringing it to a space that more aligned with my interests and that's kind of why I applied in the first place and I think it's been really good to connect with other people working from different disciplines but on the same interests and um, so it's been really good to work with people from different kind of science backgrounds but social sciences and the arts and kind of bringing all of that together in one space. Um, in terms of what interested me is I was just looking for really relevant subject area experience um, and practical experience to kind of shape my degree and help bring it to life a little bit. And I feel like I found that so grateful for the experience so far and excited to carry it forward next semester. Yeah, I think um, for me, it's kind of like I had finished my master's basically when I applied. And so I'm in that weird in-between space where it's like, what do I do next? Um, and I thought that, you know, it was really, it was quite a cool initiative. And I really like the idea of getting involved in like climate change research. Um, and it's in a way it feels like giving back um, to Edinburgh, especially with the fossil fuel project, because I get to work on something that eventually will grow and, and contribute to students that come years later. So I, I think that was kind of my motivation for getting involved and, and I just enjoyed the entire experience. And what is it about the, what is it in the specific projects you each do, like what are you specifically doing in each of the projects you're involved in? What's a typical day like for you as, a, as an Earth Fellow? To be honest, I don't know if there is a typical day as an Earth Fellow. Um, I think part of the appeal of the work, which I know Alice and Elizabeth already mentioned, is how interdisciplinary it is. Um, and I liked being given the freedom to choose which projects I wanted to work on. So, you know, we may participate in recording a podcast one day, or we may be holding interviews with researchers across the universities to better understand how they define climate adaptation, or we might be coordinating a networking event for early career researchers. Like it can be completely different every day. Um, and I think it's also been exciting to have the opportunity of working directly in the office with everyone. Um, and, you know, we really take time to meet and debrief and learn together too. So that's also been an angle of the project. Yeah, and I think, especially with the fossil fuel-led project, we're looking to get into the archives, the university archives, and do a bit more research in that space. Um, and as part of that, we get to attend workshops and, and meet other people doing archival research to learn from them 
Um, so as Sarah said, it's no two days are the same and it's kind of a mix of research tasks and communications um, and kind of being able to design your own workday based on your interests and the projects that are available. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's no two days are like you might go in thinking, yeah, today I'm just going to be in the archives all day. And then you end up doing admin and trying to organize, I don't know, like a workshop for PhD mm -hmm. students to talk about their thoughts on climate change. Like, So um, it is, it's always an exciting space. It never gets boring because it's never the same thing over and over again. Um, I started off like on a project that was like rewilding in the highlands then it ended really quickly and like I moved on to a carbon management project. And so um, what we do within the projects as well is kind of always changing because there are always things like time constraints, for example, um, which can limit how much you can actually get done. But sometimes things would pop up like a researcher might say, hey, I'm quite interested in this and I want to extend this or I'd like you to look into this other aspect that we originally probably didn't plan on looking at and so things are always changing and shifting and and it's really quite interesting mm. i'm interested by archival information uh, for the fossil ed fossil fuel ed project sorry and um, what exactly are you hoping to to find or, or learn from from the archives uh, is i assume they're archives from edinburgh university about their role in in fossil fuels is that correct yeah that's correct so the postgrad and undergrad students who worked on the project before us over the summer, they did a bit of digging in the university archives to look at some key figures that were related to the university um, and also related to fossil fuels, um, kind of like the start, the start of fossil fuels and, and kind of that history and how that ties in to the uni. Um, and we're just planning our next stage of archival research at the moment, which will start next semester. Um, and we'll, we're sort of narrowing down on our question at the moment, but we're hoping to look at some of the links between the university and its history with colonialism and perhaps slavery as well, and how this links together with fossil fuels. So we're trying to step into that space of um, shedding a bit of light on the university's history and, and giving that transparency through this archive project um, and there are a lot of other projects going on at the uni at the moment um, not to do with fossil fuels but who have the same intention of digging into the university's history to provide a bit more clarity on that so I think we're really trying to join uh, that group of people doing that really important work to, to give people a better idea of how our university has played a role in that as we're all part of that community now. So it's important to kind of uncover that history a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would agree. So this is all part of fossil fuel eds. Um, so how long has that project been running for? Cause you're all involved in that, right? And like, what is the overarching aim? Like sort of just make it explain sort of what the project's for, what it's doing and where it's gonna what the end the end goal is I guess yeah a lot of it is is transparency and accountability I mean the university is like really old or over four, 400 years old um and to to think that the university wouldn't have benefited in some way um from fossil fuels would be 
quite silly, quite obviously, a lot of our donors would be people who had investments in things like mines and, and oil fields. Um, and on top of this, the university would have also educated a lot of people that would have gone out and had inventions and, and found new ways of extracting fuel and resources. And so all of this contributes to the overall industry. Um, and the point is really just to say, we've done this, you know, we've done this, this is what came out of it, and eventually looking at what we're doing now to be better and to move on from that. Um, so that's, I think, basically the synopsis of Fossil Fuel Ed, but it's also no other university has done this yet. No one else has acknowledged that this has been their part in the problem, and so I think it's, it's also... Um, just very different for the University of Edinburgh. Um, I, and I think we'd kind of be like a game changer in that. And to go along with that, I think part of the future we hope for this project too is that it's not so much standalone research. Um, I know that others have mentioned, you know, we're forging these partnerships with other groups doing similar types of research. But we also want to you know, get the, these types of conversations into the classroom, particularly at the undergraduate level, so that that next generation of researchers or professionals working in this space are doing it intentionally um, and with an understanding of the history and context and how we ended up here, both as a university, but also as a wire, wider society um, that is so dependent on fossil fuels right now and is trying to break free of that. And I think to to add on to that, the another longer term goal of the project is to increase student engagement. Um, so we're hoping that we can create teaching materials that engage people with the topics and hopefully people who are on degree paths that kind of fit that topic are able to write their dissertations and and carry on that work in the same area and we're looking into kind of how we can support that uh, moving forward and it would be really interesting to see if we can get more students involved in doing this kind of archive research maybe for their own projects um, but also just engaging maybe in more informal ways and contributing to uh, future websites or platforms that we we have um, but yeah the plans are kind of being forged at the moment um, as we move forward no it's very it's very admirable it's it's amazing really um i can't believe no other uni's done it before that seems crazy yeah <laughs> looking into it and no one surprisingly yeah no one's really done that and i think it it's great because it also starts a conversation i mean if you think about it the people that did research in fossil fuels and and you know had inventions and like steam engines and these kinds of things they thought they were doing good for the world you know and of course the university also thought they were doing good for the world and here we are a couple hundred years later and we're like no <laughs> it's not gone so well um so what about what we're doing now you know we might think we're also doing good for the world and and where does that stand a hundred years later so i think it's also a good a good way to step back and and look at research and, and good intentions and actually the sustainability of those intentions. How how entrenched do you guys think fossil fuels are in our economy? I feel like people don't realise the extent of it, that kind of thing, um, just how they're sort of everywhere. And how do you think we're going to be able to make renewables replace that? And like, given that some of them have lower efficiency, I know today I saw there was like 
they've made a breakthrough in like nuclear fusion technology. Is that going to be the answer, or do you think it's in more traditional renewable materials? Um, I don't think that it could be any one um, type of energy. I think definitely, like to say that might be nuclear fusion or anything. I think it's it's got to be a combination of everything. Um, because that's just easier. I also strongly believe in um, localizing energy, if that makes sense, and, and to allow states to actually be more energy independent so that when you have a situation of war, for example, you're not stuck where you don't have fuel for your people. Um, so I think in light of that, it would be best for states to work on renewable energy that they each have, like if that's wave energy or solar energy or whatever it might be. Um, I also think, you know, uh, Alice and I did a long table talk with PhD students a few weeks ago, and a lot of discussion was on, you know, not taking funding from fossil fuel companies for research and, and instead taking funding from, you know, philanthropic um, entities and just avoiding fossil fuels altogether. And I, I think that's kind of naive because they are very entrenched, you know, they do own these philanthropic companies or entities, and they also own quite a few renewable energy companies as well. And so I think my logic is, is not to kind of ignore them or, or to shut them out, um, but perhaps to be a bit more strict with them than we have been. Um, because we, we're just gonna have to work with them in some way. Like, I don't think that we can continue on just fossil fuels, but I also think because of the amount of money they have and just the way our, our economy is structured, even if we transition, I think it would be impossible to move forward without taking these companies as they are and also carrying them with us, but perhaps not with the fossil fuel bit. So whether that's encouraging them or forcing them to invest more in renewable energy and renewable energy pursuits and maybe just pushing them over into that space um, with laws or something, um, I think that's kind of my view as, as a way to move forward because otherwise I'm not really sure how we can without them. Yeah, I would agree with that approach of taking them along for the ride, but almost with a little bit more force. I, I don't think we're in a position where we can just wait and hope for them to act or even act with suggestion. I think it is going to take those disincentives like higher taxes, for example, or incentives in the form of um, them pushing their funding towards more renewable energy sources to get them speaking of the large fossil fuel companies, um, to change that behavior. Something that's also incredibly important too is making sure that these changes are meaningful and adapted to specific environments. So like Elizabeth was saying, in terms of community renewables, they have to be appropriate for the environment they're in. Otherwise, they won't be producing the energy they need to because maybe you're using solar panels in an area where wind energy is more appropriate. So I think those shifts need to be very intentional. Um, sometimes you can't always wait for other folks to catch up um, to make those changes happen. Um, and, you know, we're not really at a time where we can wait anymore. So less talking, more doing. 
I guess, yeah, um, talking about that, how, like, where do you think the responsibility for making those actions happen is placed? Do you think it's with the, like, just the individual, like putting solar panels on their roof or something like that, or local communities or national governments or even the fossil fuel industry itself? Where do you think it lies? I think um, in an ideal world, it would lie with governments and big corporations, people who currently have the power and money to make those changes quickly. But I think considering the situation we're in with that not necessarily happening as quickly as it needs to, it's important to get communities and individuals on board to add to that that pressuring on governments and organizations and companies. But in an ideal world, I think governments and corporations would take the brunt of the responsibility. And also, I think those organizations in the global north would take the brunt of the responsibility, considering that's where most of the emissions are coming from. And that's where most of the power to make such huge changes is situated at the moment. Yeah, um, I, I agree with Alice. I I think it's it's kind of like a, a shared responsibility, but more so on um, governments and and companies because they they just they hold the power. Governments hold the power, you know, the legislative, and companies just hold all the money. Um, and I think a lot of our power comes in making demands on our governments. Um, but even so, as we can see, we've, we've been demanding, um, especially in, in the case of like um, energy production, we've been demanding for renewables and, and for change and, and it's been slow coming. So I think, I guess we just have to keep fighting, honestly, um, and keep banding together. And I think that's the only way forward. We band together, we push our governments, and they nudge the companies. And, and I think that's probably the most feasible way forward um, if we're being realistic. Ideally, though, it would be nice if the companies just decided, oh, we're not going to do this anymore. <laughs> we're going to be better um, and change. But realistically, it's, it's still a lot of it's going to fall on us, even though I don't think it should. Hmm. And uh, Alice, you mentioned the global north and just for any listeners who don't know what that term means, I know there's the global south as well. What are those, what do those terms mean and how do they relate to the issue of sustainability and, and fossil fuels? I'm not really sure how best to define it, but I think in terms of this conversation, the global north would be the countries who hold the power and the money and the responsibility because they have caused most of the damage um, and often you see things like um, western countries shipping their waste halfway around the world to other countries to deal with and that kind of shifting of responsibility and shifting of the problem is not going to help anything considering we all live in one planet and ecosystem and we're inhibiting the ability of other countries to progress forward by shifting that responsibility and shifting those problems so I think in terms of this conversation that's where I'm thinking um, I don't know if Sarah and Elizabeth have anything 
else to add? That's in line with my thinking as well. It's typically the more affluent emitters, um, even historically, who have contributed to climate change that now the global south that we speak of is experiencing the effects of most directly. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of who is the responsible inputter of these problems versus who is being affected. Yeah, I would agree as well. I mean, I know when I did international relations and I, I looked at the UN and realized that it was kind of like five main countries on the Security Council that make all the actual decisions and then, you know, had the power to veto anything that anybody tried to raise. Um, and they're they're basically, you know, the global north, the, the more powerful countries that have been through industrialization and now they own the means of production and, and they hold all the wealth. Um, and so the responsibility has to lie with them because they have the power. They've seized the power, and so the only way for anything to change is for them to actually do things. You know, um, the rest of us—I <laughs> say us because I'm—I'm I'm from the West Indies, so you know, I'm from a tiny island, and um, we're just always saying, "Please, please do something." You know, please make changes because we're losing our beaches and we're losing our land, um, and we just don't have the power to like go to Shell or Texaco or and say no you know, stop, we can't do that. It's, it's up to the, the governments of the global north and the companies in the global north to make these changes. Mm, yes. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the University of Edinburgh can help people in the global south, such as is in the West Indies, to support them and, and amplify their voices and their concerns about how the global north is affecting them? Yeah, I think the university has a really good platform because it's it's old and it's trusted. Um, and quite a few leaders and influential people have passed through this university. So, you know, that just adds to it. And I think when the university partners with, you know, for example, states in the West Indies, there's several good things that come out of it. One is that you, you get training like I would have gotten training. I would have come here and, and learned and I can take those skills back and contribute to my country. There's also, you know, the university just giving us more of that platform with their own platforms, like their social media, their pages, the kind of research that they engage with and that they promote. I, you know, I think they, they have a lot of potential to highlight our issues and, and research that's really pertinent to us in terms of things like, you know, climate adaptation for us, you know, what that could look like, what's being done. Um, so I think they definitely have a lot of potential um, just in overall helping us to spread our message, if you want to say that, um, and also helping us to move forward with, with what we have now. Um, I think they have a lot of potential there. Mm. Yeah, out of interest is is that is going back to the West Indies and applying what you've you've learnt through through things like the Edinburgh Earth Initiative. Is that the is that the the career goal? Is that the the life goal? That is a long term goal. Mm. Yeah, that that's the end goal. Is I I want to go back and I want to contribute because that's that's home ultimately. Um, you know, that's my culture and and my people and and when you. And we're not as bad as the Maldives. I just want to say that. Um, but, you know, when you grow up and you actually get to witness over time the beach getting smaller, 
um, or people moving because now their house, there's like waves washing up on it and, and they just can't stay in that house anymore. Um, the fact that this is really affecting your people and it's going to affect generations down the line, it, it becomes really apparent and, and heavy. And so, you know, ultimately I want to go back and be of some use and, and contribute in some way. Um, and whatever that looks like, I don't know yet, <laughs> but that is, that is the end goal. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's brilliant. And I mean, I think that's, that is a good point is that people in the global North are so often like, insulated from the direct effects of climate change, like beaches getting smaller and all that kind of thing. Climate change often doesn't really reach people in the global north as, as much and why people are maybe less yeah less less ready to do things even why maybe the university is less ready to to do things as well and when when we talk about the threat of climate change and and fossil fuels i think some members of the public get quite wary of their their personal freedoms being impacted i know there's you know suggestions of people can only fly a certain amount of kilometers per year or when we're talking about the impact that farming, meat and dairy farming has on, on climate change, whether or not people should be moving to a more plant-based diet. Um, how far do you think that radical climate action can can impact uh, personal freedoms of, of members of the public when really the, the, main, the main problem is these private companies that are refusing to, to change? I mean, I think that goes back to our discussion of responsibility before because, yeah, it's completely justified that particularly younger generations now are resentful that these types of behavioral shifts and lifestyle shifts would be expected of them. However, you know, do we want our planet not to be burning <laughs> in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Absolutely. Um, so I think my approach would be kind of reframing that and saying, you know, instead of it impacting your personal freedoms, maybe those freedoms just look different. The world we're living in is different. It's going to completely change. And I know this is an idealistic approach to that. Um, but, you know, offering other incentives like reducing the cost of train travel or um, increasing the number of options of plant-based foods or encouraging maybe like one or two meatless meals a week, like incremental behavioral change from an individual level could be a really effective way to let individuals feel like they still have agency and choice in making these shifts while also providing a certain benefit to the environment. Yeah, and I think the reframing that Sarah's talking about is also important in the sense that <clears throat> like what what is personal freedom because for some people um, climate change has already impacted on their personal freedoms like uh, Elizabeth's example of at home with having to move house that, that's their freedom of being able to choose where they live that's been taken away by climate change so and that's just one example of many that people are already experiencing at the moment. Um, and it's just that some of us have been fortunate enough to live in places where we might not have seen our personal freedoms impacted yet. But it will happen. And I think it's kind of reframing that to think, to extend our compassion to like 
people where that's already happening and, and reframe our sense of freedom because that's that's not a reality for a lot of people already. Um, and, and an example of it coming to the UK is, is the heat waves from the summer and that's people are starting to see, oh, even in Scotland we can have these dramatic heat waves and that's only going to get worse and, and that is going to affect people's personal freedoms so it's deciding what we what we do about that now and and whether we can reframe that and get people to act now mm -hmm. yeah I think hopefully everyone can agree when I say you know having to have one or two plant-based meals in a week pales in comparison to losing your home yeah I think yeah. um I mean I I believe a lot in innovation that's my hope that we'll you know, we'll find the technology we need to make flight less of a big emitter. <laughs> um, although I very much love trains, so I'm very much for trains. Um, I think it's it's a really interesting discussion because there there comes the the factor of ethics and and nuance and like how far do you go with how much you restrict people and and how much of that is ethical. I know. When I was doing my master's, um, we had a discussion in class about the ethics of, of limiting um, population in, you know, the global south, where population is continuing to grow um, versus the global north, where things have kind of plateaued. Um, and that just comes with the stages the society is at. And, like, is it ethical to now restrict them from having as many kids as they would want? Do we enforce birth control on them or like sterilization and, and the ethics of that? Um, so I think when we have this, these discussions, there's a lot of nuance as well that can go into, it's not always just gonna be limiting people's meals, but you know, how far will we take it? But I do think it's probably gonna be necessary that we do at least have some restrictions because Otherwise, just by nature, we are kind of selfish beings. If we see a cow and we want the cow, we're going to eat the cow. Um, so unless we tell people, no, you cannot eat that cow, will they actually stop? I, I don't think so. It'll also be interesting to see. I mean, I can guess now that it's the global north that will be defining those ethics and standards and restrictions, but... Is there a future in which that could be participatory or maybe recommendations are coming from the global south, those people who are already being impacted and have had their personal freedoms taken away? Yeah, not sure how it'll end up, but maybe there's there's an opportunity for more conversation there. Yeah, I think if the transition is actually just, then you know we would have those discussions and, and we wouldn't completely infringe so to speak on people's cultures and, and their way of life and just have you know a few states instructing the rest of the world on how they should live and and what they should do um ideally we have everyone as part of the discussion and, and making those decisions and and keeping in mind people's cultures as well and that kind of thing um i would hope that that's how it moves forward and not not the opposite you know Kind of scary when you think about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess we'll find out what happens. 
Thank you so much to the three Earth Fellows today for discussing what goes on at the Edinburgh Earth Initiative. If you want to find out more about the initiative, you can visit their website at earth.ed.ac.uk. Furthermore, if you're a University of Edinburgh postgraduate student and want to get involved as an Earth Fellow, we are recruiting now. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USCI, that's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. If you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please get in touch and keep an eye on our social media for more information. This episode was hosted by me, Emily Southworth, and my co-host, Emily Oliver, and our podcast manager, Katie Pickup. The podcast logo was designed by USCI Chief Editor Apple Chew, The episode art was designed by Amy Perks. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin McLeod. Thank you for listening and until next time, keep it science.